Heavenly Father, we thank you, uh, as we do every week, for revealing yourself to us in your word, for letting us know who you are. Uh, We thank you as well for the reformers uh, who um, opened that word to the world, opened that world to the church, um, and Father, for for bringing the church back to you, bringing the church back to what you have done to save us. Father, as we continue to explore that this morning, and we pray that our focus would be not on them, but on you, uh, that you would help us to see you more clearly, to love you more deeply this morning uh, because of these men. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, uh, if you guys were here with us, we, we spent the whole time talking about sola fide, faith alone. Uh, we talked the week before about grace alone and Christ alone, and then talked last week about sola fide, and these three really hang together. Uh, we believe that we're saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, and that, that salvation is given to us through faith. And that, that that faith is itself a gift. And so faith is not, some, is not the only meritorious work that we do. It's, it's the gift through which God gives us the salvation that he has decreed, that he has accomplished through Christ the Son. Uh, it's all by grace, all by faith, not by works. And, and because of that, uh, we saw some of the implications of that last week. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not, we can have peace with God, or it's possible if you work really hard that you can get peace with God, but we have peace with God. And so we said last week that if there's no possibility of peace with God in your theology of salvation, according to Romans 5.1, you have the wrong theology of salvation. There, there is peace with God. Now, that doesn't mean that we feel it all the time, but we can continually come back to this truth that because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Another implication of that is the gospel really is good news. You know, the gospel, the word gospel means good news. And if it's not salvation by faith alone, if it's not salvation in Christ alone and by grace alone, then it's not good news because it's just the same old message that we've heard all of our lives. Keep working, try harder, do better. The gospel really is good news. Uh, Another thing that Sola Fide reminds us of, uh, one of the implications, is that we're justified by faith alone, not our perfect theology. The question often comes when we talk about these things and, and how salvation works, well, what about people who don't believe this? What about Christians, what about Catholics who uh, are sincere in their faith, who love Jesus Christ, but don't believe exactly the same thing here? Uh, an analogy C.S. Lewis gives, um, talking not about this, but it, it works here, is about you know, the current theory of nutrition and vitamins and, and eating a balanced meal. Um, that's a recent understanding in human knowledge that we, we only recently understand what it is in our food that makes us healthy, that gives us energy and how all that works. Uh, and that understanding keeps going and keeps growing. But you, you don't have to have that understanding to actually be nourished by a meal. It's not like until we made the discovery about vitamins and protein and all this that like people were malnourished everywhere. Uh, it still works even if you don't completely understand it. The, the core of salvation, the core of Christianity, according to Paul, according, according to Christ, is, you know, Paul says, we preached on it last week, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He doesn't add caveats in there about, and you're really serious about justification by faith or any of these other things. He says it's, it's through Christ that you're saved, not your perfect theology. So yes, we, we strive to know more about God because we love him and we want to know more about this man that we love. But we're not saved by our theology. Our theology highlights the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us. That's a a distinction that I think is helpful for us and helps us to be winsome towards others who might disagree on some of the points that we've talked about in here. Uh, We also talked about and and hopefully cleared up some misconceptions about faith. Um, Faith is not merely an intellectual thing, but it's, it's a heart reliance on Christ. It's a receiving and resting on him alone for salvation. And we said, too, we're not saved by the strength of our faith. I told the story about my grandmother driving over a bridge and how she just freaks out the whole time and like utters this constant stream of prayer and kind of a charismatic uh, spirit and, and, and how my, my grandpa is really confident about driving over a bridge and, and he'll you know, like jerk the steering wheel a little bit to mess with his wife. And um, both of them get over the bridge because their faith, their confidence in the bridge isn't what gets them across the bridge. It's the strength of the bridge itself. 
Weak faith, we said, in a strong object is enough to save. It's the object of our faith. It's Jesus Christ, not the faith itself, that saves us. So that's what we talked about last week, uh, really focused in on salvation by faith alone, uh, and, and with it, justification, that the two really go hand in hand. This week, I want to continue that discussion a little bit by, by talking about sanctification, the relationship between justification and sanctification, and the difference that that makes in our Christian life. Um, and then we'll introduce the life of John Calvin as well. Uh, we should be able to get through him. Uh, this week. And just to give you guys a picture of where we're going, next week we'll talk about the last of the solas, soli deo gloria. What does it mean that, that all of salvation, that all of life is to be lived to the glory of God alone? Um, you've heard of a Protestant work ethic. We'll talk about that next week and how that comes out of this Reformation. And then our last class, two weeks from now, we'll talk about the, the continuing relevance of the Reformation today. Why, why did we spend two months studying this? And where can you go in your study of it? Why does it still matter that we talk about the Reformation today? So that's where we're going in future weeks. But today, again, justification and sanctification and the life of John Calvin. So first, on your sheet there, you have two questions. You see that WSC, that stands for Westminster Shorter Catechism. We've referenced uh, this, this, group of, um, this group of doctrinal statements before. The Westminster Assembly uh, met in 1640s, 43, I think, is when it started. Uh, so you know, more than 100 years after the Reformation, uh, as some of the, the tumultuous times had settled down, some of the theology had time to develop, um, people began to actually read and know their Bibles better, and pastors from England, Scotland, uh, some from the main continent of Europe, gathered together at Westminster. Westminster uh, in London, and they wrote the Westminster Confessions, a confession of faith, a larger catechism, which was for adults to memorize, a shorter catechism, which was for children to memorize, and that's what you have in front of you. Uh, just to give you a sense of where we've come over the last 400 years since then, uh, the shorter catechism is what I had to memorize to get a master's degree in divinity. And it was written for children to memorize. So, so that's how the times have changed a little bit. Um, but the catechism, catechism is a teaching tool that's a question and answer. Uh, so you, you have two questions here on your sheet and the answers that the, the catechism gives. And the first, what is justification? And again, this is what we talked about last week. Justification is an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So we talked about that last week, that it's not just the forgiveness of our sins, but that we're also credited with the righteousness of Christ. That, that our sin is imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to us. And when God looks at us, he makes it a legal declaration that says not guilty. And that legal declaration can't be reversed. And that that justification is received by faith alone. Then we have sanctification. The next question. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace where we are renewed in the whole man after the image of, image of Christ and enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So we're going to unpack that a little bit this morning, but I, I want us uh, to do that, kind of workshop it, to compare and, compare and contrast the two. So first question, what do you notice that's similar about these two things? Both are by grace. By grace. <coughs> what else is similar about them? The act of God. Act of God. It is his, not partly ours. Holy His. Yeah. Uh, I, I will uh, refrain from putting that on because there, there's an aspect in which we work in sanctification. Um, so there's a, um, yes, justification is all of God and sanctification is of God's grace, but it involves, it does involve our effort. What about some other similarities between these two? The centerpiece of being saved. Centerpiece of being saved. What do you mean by that? Well, in the first case, we have been, in the second case, it's being saved. So mm -hmm. they are like, but they're slightly different. It's a progressive thing. Yeah. So uh, we could talk about justification as have, having been saved and sanctification as we are being saved. Um, Holy Spirit. Uh, both involve righteousness and, and what two parts of righteousness? I don't understand the question. 
Christ's Well, Jamie, you said they both involve righteousness. In what way? Where we look at is righteousness in sight through Christ. So that's a negative aspect and a positive aspect. Both justification and sanctification have to do with a positive part of righteousness and a negative part of sin. In justification, our sins are forgiven and we're credited with the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, our sins are put off and righteousness is put on. So both of these things deal with our relation to sin and to positive and to righteousness, or negative righteousness and positive righteousness, transgression and, and holiness. And both of these have Christ as their aim and as their focus. You know, justification is done only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And in sanctification, we're transformed into the image of Christ. Well, what about some differences? What do you see uh, different between these two definitions? How do you see that in those definitions? a work of God's free grace where we are renewed and whole and enabled more and more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the, you know, the, the subtle difference, the one, two, three, fourth word of each of those answers. Justification is an act. Sanctification is a work. So this justification is a legal declaration that happens at one time. It's the word of God and it can't be removed. You only need to be justified once. You don't need to be justified over and over again throughout your Christian life. Sanctification, on the other hand, is a work. And in case we're not sure what that, what that means, the authors say, you know, as Lim said, more and more, uh, that over the course of time we're conformed to the image of Christ, more and more enabled to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. What are some other differences? Sure. Justification is that act of faith. Sanctification is just that part of working through. You still got the faith there, mm-hmm. but it doesn't take faith to do the work. You understand what I'm saying? Or no? I'm not sure if I do. The justification process is what Christ has done for us. Uh-huh. Yes, our sins will be forgiven. It's only in Christ alone. Now our works, not a works based, but just mm-hmm. our works or because of that act of faith, that one time we know Christ has done it, but it's a continuation, but it doesn't take that continuous faith each and every day. Right, it's the, the saving faith that works in justification and the, the sanctifying faith or transforming faith that, that yeah. still rests on God to do the work in us. But uh, as James says, faith without works is dead. Uh, the sanctification is, is proof that our... Our saving faith is authentic. Yeah, it's it includes faith, but in a different way, and it includes us, but in a different way. Right. Um, or justification um, is a declaration about us versus with. Justification, um, you know, we we're given the gift of faith. We believe in Christ, and God says, "You are holy." Sanctification, though, is a work of grace in us and and, and with us. It says we're renewed because there's both this passive and active language in the sanctification definition. We are renewed in the whole man, but we're enabled to die to sin and to live under righteousness. So, so there's the sense in which it's God working in us and it's us working. Not as in God does his 50% and we do our 50% or some other you know, percentage slide and scale of it. But because God is working in us, our work is made effective. Uh, it, it's we don't let go and let God when it comes to sanctification. We're we're called to obey the scriptures. We're called to put righteousness to life. Any other differences? Would it be Christ's righteousness versus our righteousness, or is that like justification is? I think rightly understood. Yeah. Christ's righteousness and sanctification is based on us becoming righteous. So that would be our righteousness. Name. <laughs> Versus um, actual, I guess. Um, you know, we're credited with Christ's Christ righteousness. And, and one of the proofs of this is that throughout the New Testament, the apostles call believers saints. Uh, because God has in our justification said, you are holy. He said, well done, faithful, good and faithful servant. You are a saint. And then in our sanctification, 
God actually makes us what he's declared us to be. Uh, we used the image a few weeks ago, and uh, I'm sorry if you were in the inquirer's class yesterday, you, this will be recycled for you, um, uh, of a king who marries a prostitute. Uh, and that, that what happens at the moment of marriage is that the prostitute is all of a sudden called a queen. Her, her title has changed. Her status has changed. But in her behavior, immediately, she's not going to act very queenly. She may be unfaithful to her husband. She'll still interact with him in a transactional way. Um, but though her behavior won't be queenly, she probably won't have the best table manners, um, her behavior won't be queenly, but her title is queen. For us, our behavior may not be saintly, but if we are justified by faith, our title is saint. This is why we said last week that Paul in 1 Corinthians can greet the church in Corinth as saints who are being sanctified and then take them out to the woodshop because they're screwing around in the Christian life. They're still saints, even though they're not acting saintly. But over time, over the course of sanctification, that title of saint actually begins to reflect what we are. That title of queen will actually begin to reflect the way this prostitute will will act. She will act more queenly. She'll refrain from certain actions and put on certain qualities because of the love shown to her by the king. It's the love of God that transforms us, that that calls us, and, and God, by his grace, makes us what he has declared us to be. In justification, he declares that we are holy. And in sanctification, he actually is at work making us holy. Any other similarities, differences, comments, questions on what we said so far? Would it be fair to say that in justification, in God's sight, we are righteous? Through sanctification, regardless of how we look at other people. But in sanctification, we begin... To resemble Christ to other people as well as mm-hmm. righteous in God's sight. Absolutely, yeah. That at, at the moment, and, and Bill has said this before from the pulpit. You know, you're say you're evangelizing your neighbor, and he's the biggest jerk in the neighborhood, and he comes to Christ. What is he going to be the very next day? A Christian jerk, because behavior takes a while to work itself out. That doesn't mean that he's not saved. It just means that God is going to be at work in his life, making him more and more holy. Um, that, that, that justification inevitably leads to sanctification. And our sanctification it works because we are justified. Uh, th- this is huge for us to get the order right in the Christian life. That we are justified and then out of that we start being sanctified. Uh, the, the Catholic Church had it backward in a sense. They, they said you need to work really hard, you need to attend Mass, you need to do penance in the hopes that at the end of your life you will be justified. Um, work really hard and maybe you'll be good enough to where God will justify you and, and you know either purgatory or heaven or whatever it would be uh, if, if, you've, if you've been sanctified enough through your life then you can hope for justification at the end but the reformers turned it on its head based on scripture um, that we are justified and secure and assured our salvation and out of that we are sanctified uh, a, a couple ways that this works out in the Christian life. Um, if you have a Bible, flip over to Second Peter chapter one. Paul start or Peter. Sheesh. Peter, um, the guy who the book's named after, starts off uh, in verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us as precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So he introduces um, just the, the topic of Christ, that it's through Christ, through the knowledge of him, and through what he has done, that we, we partake of the promises of God. And then verse 5, Because of that, because of what Christ has done, for this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, 
and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who wants to be effective and fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Anyone? Okay, it it looks like all of these things, and and this is Peter's call to them. But then he he reminds them again of what that takes. Verse 9, Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So Peter says, if you're struggling putting on holiness in the Christian life, if you're struggling to put on faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love, if you're struggling with those things, it's not because you're not working hard enough. According to verse 9, it's because you've forgotten your justification. So Peter says that, that you are, you're struggling in your sanctification, or if you are struggling in your sanctification, it's not because you're not working hard enough, it's because you're not resting in the definitive, declarative work of God that says you are holy, and that actually gives us the power to put on those things. And by implication, therefore, in verse 10, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So Peter says... The way to grow in the Christian life is not, again, by working very, very hard. Yes, that's part of it, but at root and the foundation of it is remembering that we've been cleansed from our former sins, remembering that we've been justified. What happens in our life when we get them backwards? When we look at our sanctification and base our standing on God on how we're doing day to day? Well, I mean, you're so always had it. Yeah, you, you always have it, but... I'd say it's, it's like clear or whatever, but um, I guess, I don't know. Yeah, so say, say I have a really, really good day in my sanctification. You know, I'm, I don't get angry in traffic at, you know, tourists coming to a complete stop at a traffic circle. Um, I share the gospel with my co-workers. I buy my wife flowers on the way home. Um, but as I'm, as I'm about to turn left into our neighborhood, I get rear-ended. What happens to me in my mind if I'm basing my salvation on how I'm doing in my sanctification? It blows up. You're back to ground zero. Yeah, I'm back to ground zero. Yeah. God, what, what happened? Why did you let this happen? You know, right, exactly. I was having a great day today. Yeah, it's like, wait, I, I've, I've done all this good stuff. I've been, I've been patient. I've been kind. I shared the gospel with somebody. And, and you're going to hit me with a car? Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> You believe that your salvation is based upon what you do, right? Rather than what God does, right? And so, when when inconvenient things happen, uh, when when bad things happen to us um, that that we interpret as bad, we get angry with God and we say, "But I've I've done so good today." Flip it on its head. Then, what if you've had a really bad day? You know, you, you laid on the horn at some little old lady crossing the street. Uh, you were a jerk to your coworkers. You yelled at your kids on the phone, and, and you're coming home, and and your your spouse has cooked this gourmet meal for you and laid it out for you. What what's going to go on in your mind that day? I didn't deserve this. I, I didn't deserve this. Yeah. Either your neighbor jerk. You know, hey man, your wife's cooking smells good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, do I see a hand over here? Yeah, I was just going to say that at that point where you were rear-ended and get upset and mad, some case would think you would lose your salvation mm-hmm. at that point and have to start over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about, you know, you, you do all these bad things throughout the day, lay on the horn at the little old lady crossing the street and, you know, take candy from a baby and all this, and, and you get in your car to drive home. What are you going to expect on your drive home as you start to reflect on your day? I deserve to be rear-ended. So we're, we're waiting for God to punish us. Or, yeah, like rear-ended, but not by a little Honda Civic, by like a Hummer um, that's going to destroy my car instead of put a ding on it. Um, when we get justification and sanctification flipped, we, we slip back into this works righteousness way of living the Christian life. Uh, we slip back into God likes me or doesn't like me. He blesses me or punishes me based on what I'm doing, based on how my sanctification is going. But when we base our sanctification, when we base our relationship with God and our growth and holiness on what he has already done and already declared, then we celebrate his grace in our life on a good day, on a holy day, and, and we grieve our sin 
on an unholy day, but we do both before a Father who has already justified us. Not through some mean-spirited, tit-for-tat punishment or, or reward machine, but through a Father who longs for us to look more and more like Him and, and whose heart we grieve when we sin. We, we don't come to confession out of, out of fear of punishment, but out of having grieved our Heavenly Father. I see your hand back there. I just say, unless we rest in God's work, we're constantly beating ourselves up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dale? That's why we need each other mm-hmm. to hold each other accountable. Yeah. Husbands and wives, close friends. Yeah, the, the, the project of sanctification, if, if you can talk about it like that, it is a community affair. Um, you look at the New Testament and the way that it talks about the Christian life, um, so many of the commands have the phrase one another tacked onto the end of it. Love one another, pray for one another, bear with one another, encourage one another, don't get angry with one another, speak kindly to one another. Um, you can't live the Christian life on your own. If we're going to follow the commands of Jesus Christ, we have to be in community. Other comments, questions on what happens when we get the cart before the horse? Does that mean that it's wrong to wonder what God's trying to teach you when stuff isn't going well? No. Not at all. Yeah, no, not at all. Okay, like, you know how you can say, man, this stuff's going on in my life, so what is God trying to teach me so I can get through this and be done with it? So right, okay. so, so, so going back to Romans 5.1, um, we, we've been justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God. Um, that, that's true about us because of our justification, but we don't always feel that peace with God, often because we, put our, we seek our justification in other things. And so those trials, we then interpret being rear-ended or inconvenient things that happen as God waking us up to God, what am, I, what am I putting my trust in other than you? And so, yes, God is still teaching us, but teaching us not to correct us or punishment, but to draw us more and more to holiness. Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. Any other comments, questions on that? Uh, A a couple more um, observations about that. Our slowness in sanctification does not mean that we are not justified. Um, Sanctification is a lifelong process, as as we've said over and over, more and more. Um, Paul writes, you know, some people think Paul wrote like upwards of four letters to the Corinthians. He references other letters that he's written. There's a long relationship. And over time, things in the church in Corinth get better as they're being sanctified. But even when he's writing 2 Corinthians, after the first letter, after a painful visit, after another letter, and it seems like there might have been one that like he wrote and it's like, I can't send this to him and tore up. Um, A... They're still growing. There's still more holiness there, but there's still a lot more that they need to do. Uh, and, and 1 John, um, the Apostle John, in, in the letters that he writes, talks about this. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Um, sanctification is never complete in this life. It, it takes a lifetime of God working in us um, slowly, day by day. Uh, and it's frustrating because... We want things to be quick. You know, say, God, you've declared me to be holy. Now make me holy like that. My life will be a whole lot easier. Um, but it's, it's that slow process, that slow, uh, steady trust in God over the course of our whole life. Um, so if, if you're struggling with sin in your life and you hate the sin that you're struggling with, be encouraged. Um, because hatred of sin is not something that comes from a heart that hasn't been justified. That, that struggle with sin is real and keep struggling, but don't let your slowness in sanctification make you think that God doesn't really love you or hasn't really justified you. Because if you desire to put off sin, that's a desire that doesn't come from you. That comes from the grace of God at work in your heart through the Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't have time this morning because I do want to get on to John Calvin, but Ephesians 4 and 5 give a great picture of what sanctification looks like. Uh, that you've got this phrase in the question, more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Uh, those aren't abstract things. Paul in Ephesians 4 and 5 gives very concrete examples of what that looks like. He says, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, let him work diligently so that he, am, he may have something to give uh, to those who are in need. So this putting off and putting on is, is putting off sin and looking at the, the opposite virtue or the corresponding righteousness that we can then put on. And that's the best way to deal with sin in our lives is, is not to say, okay, I need to stop lying and I also need to be kind to people. Uh, those things are somewhat related, but the best, way, the best way to combat 
falsehood in your life, to combat lying, is to proactively seek to tell the truth, to encourage others in the truth. That, that these virtues, um, virtues and vices go hand in hand together. And as we put off a vice, we put on that virtue. Again, in the power of the Holy Spirit, relying on God's work in us. Sanctification, again, is never complete in this life, but, but one day, the good news is it will be. Uh, flip over to Romans chapter 8. Everybody knows Romans chapter 7, the, the chapter on sanctification. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I know I'm supposed to do, and my, I'm at war within myself. The wretched man that I am, who's going to free me from this body of death? And then Paul talks about life in the Spirit. And when he gets down to Romans 8, verse 26, he says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then he he gives this extra layer of comfort. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Glorification is, is... we will be glorified in heaven. We will be, and by that we mean we, we won't be able to sin. We'll see God, we'll see Christ so perfectly that all desire for our own will, for our own self, will be purged of us. That corruption will finally be gone. And, and the God who declared us to be holy in justification and is making us holy in sanctification will actually finish the work. And in our glorification in heaven, the new heavens and new earth, we will actually be holy. But notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Sanctification is really uncomfortable because it, it's, it's putting to death the way that we've lived. It's putting to death sin in our life. But Paul just glosses over it. He says, if you've been justified, you will be sanctified. So if you're struggling in your sanctification, uh, take courage because your glorification is not dependent on how well you do in your sanctification. Yes, God wants us to be holier. Yes, he wants us to look more and more like his son. But if he has justified us, we will be glorified. Our, our salvation, our ultimate salvation, our future salvation is so sure that Paul can skip over the how are you doing in your Christian life question. He says, if you've been saved by grace, you will be glorified. And that's very encouraging because, again, sanctification takes a long time and it's a lot of work, but it's not the end. Uh, the, the end, the goal of sanctification is our glorification, our perfection in heaven with God. Comments, questions, thoughts on that before we switch gears and, and talk about John Calvin a little bit? Yeah, Mike. What do you mean that sanctification takes a long time as if it takes a different length of time for different people? It just it takes from the moment of our justification to our death, which is then the moment of glorification. Yeah. So however long that is. So for the thief on the cross, it wasn't that long. Um, but for someone who came to faith at a really young age and lives to a ripe old age, it's a long time. Kind of like Lynn. Yeah, kind of like Lynn. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have? Yeah, I'm a short catechism. Uh huh. We talked about sanctification. That definition there. Mm-hmm. Is that in the parentheses, that, that's my addition to it. The way the New Testament talks about salvation, we, we tend to equate salvation with justification. Um, but the way the New Testament talks about salvation, it talks about it past, present, and future. That we have been saved in our justification, but the New Testament also talks about us being saved. You are being saved, uh, and that's sanctification. That's that progressive aspect of God's work in us. And it also talks about a future, that we will be saved. And that's the glorification that we just talked about. So that's my, the parentheses are my addition uh, to clarify kind of where in the timeline we're talking about. Because again, we tend to see the word salvation and think, you know, commit my life to Christ, justification. Uh, but salvation is, is a lot more than just that. Yeah, good question. Thanks. And just, it, it, as, as you're teaching this, and I know this is also so true in this way, and I'm realizing 
how, uh, you know, for those of us who have grown up in Christian churches, or at least my experience, you know, that how are you doing in your Christian life, and mm-hmm. the formulas of what we're supposed to do, and, you know, all that stuff, you know, it's, it's almost like, and, and in addition, our human nature, mm-hmm. focused on what we're doing, I think it really takes reprogramming. Yeah, uh, it, it takes, you know, not just reprogramming, but constant reminders that we are justified by faith and therefore secure in our Christian life because everything else is works-based. And that's the, the default mode of our heart. You know, when we're not paying attention, we slip back into that. Uh, Christianity Today, um, their, their first issue this year is about the Reformation. And they've got a long article about Martin Luther that I haven't read yet, but the title of it is Why We Still Prefer Justification by Works. You know, 500 years after Luther, we still want it to be this way and so desperately need to be reminded and have it rooted deep in our hearts that because of God's declaration over us, we are safe. We are safe, we are secure, and we can worship, we can serve, we can pursue holiness out of thankfulness, out of love for a Heavenly Father, not out of fear of a divine judge. The, the judge has already spoken, and he's declared not guilty over us. So we can, we can serve a, a Heavenly Father, not fear a divine judge. Let's switch gears and talk about John Calvin some. Um, we've spent a lot of time about Martin Luther, but he's not the only reformer. Uh, he's just the most vocal and colorful and um, bombastic reformer. Um, John Calvin uh, is very different from Luther. Uh, he was born July 10th, 1509 in France, uh, north of Paris. I should flip this over now. This is my incredibly detailed and skillfully drawn map of Western Europe. Martin Luther, uh, his life happens in Germany. Um, Calvin was born about 60 miles north of, north of Paris in a little town called Noyon, Noyon. Oh, when? Um, so Calvin's born 1509, Luther's 95 theses are 1517. Uh, so this is eight, Calvin's born eight years before Luther uh, lights the powder keg. Um, so so he, he's, coming, he's coming of age, he's growing up, and he's going to school in a, in a world and in a church that's, that's kind of in upheaval. Um, Luther disappointed his father by entering the priesthood, uh, but that was Calvin's father's intention for him uh, all the time. And at 12, Calvin went to Paris to begin his study of theology. So he goes from a little town up here down to the big city. Um, Notre Dame was there by now. I put some other locations on here. This is where the Sagrada Familia is in Barcelona. We saw the uh, cathedral in Pisa and in Florence the other day when we did the, the slides of um, some, ref- some pre-Reformation cathedrals. So that's, that kind of gives you a context. But uh, Notre Dame in Paris, where Calvin would have been studying. He was there for five years. And his father changed his mind and said, well, I don't want my son to be a priest. I want him to be a lawyer. Um, Calvin said, okay, fine. Uh, He has generally a submissive spirit. Uh, We'll see that several other times in his life. Um, And he had already started to grow somewhat disillusioned with the church. You know, Luther's reforms are are spreading across Europe and his teachings and writings are are getting smuggled everywhere. Um, and, And so Calvin's starting to get a little disillusioned with the way things are in the church. So he goes to Orléans to study law, uh, and it's in this period of life that he, he has his conversion um, to, to Luther's way of thinking, to the, the Reformed way of thinking. Uh, he's studying the original languages here, Greek and Hebrew, uh, and reflecting on this, uh, Calvin said that God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. And that's all we know about Calvin's conversion. Calvin didn't talk about himself much. We know a lot about Luther, and we know a lot of, especially about Luther's opinion of Luther, because he talks about himself all the time. Uh, it's, it's not always like, look at me, I'm so great. Often it's very self-deprecating. Calvin just doesn't talk about himself. Uh, this is another theme that we'll see in his life, uh, a self-effacing, humble spirit. So it's at this point in his life, uh, when he's studying law in Orléans, that he uh, is converted. And then around this time, uh, in the 15... 1520s, early 1530s, um, France is starting to get violent uh, with the Reformation. The French king, Francis I, uh, wasn't an enthusiastic Catholic, 
but kind of more of a status quo Catholic. Um, he, he was okay with that, and he was okay with the reformers. But then the reformers got a little too angry and too violent uh, for his liking. There, there was defacing of public property, um, destroying of statues, and breaking stained glass windows, and, and all these things that uh, overly enthusiastic reformers were doing everywhere. Uh, but in France, uh, the king wasn't very pleased about it. Uh, there was also a public attack on the mass. Uh, one night, several people throughout Paris um, nailed placards to, to walls, to public buildings, even to the door of the king's bedchamber uh, that, that attacked the mass. And uh, it was not winsome at all. The title of it was True Articles on the Horrible, Great and Important Abuses of the Papal Mass Devised Directly Against the Lord's Supper of Jesus Christ. So, Horrible, great, and important abuses. Um, not exactly inviting a conversation. Um, so, basically, the Reformation in France comes to mean rebellion. Uh, so, persecution starts against evangelicals, uh, and things start to, to heat up. So, in the mid-1530s, Calvin slips over the border to Basel, Switzerland. This is where he goes uh, immediately, and it's there that he writes this first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is um, probably Calvin's biggest legacy, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, went through several different editions, at least five or six. But this first one uh, in 15, what year was that? 36 maybe, um, that neighborhood. Uh, this first one was a pocket edition. And he's 26 when he writes this, by the way. Um, or whatever the math works out to. Um, he, he's younger then than I am now when he writes the first edition of his Institutes of the Christian Religion. And it's basically a Christianity 101. What are, what are the basic teachings of the Christian faith? And it, it was a pocket edition that could be hidden in a pocket or easily destroyed if you, know, if you got caught. And he wrote it to be smuggled into France. He actually includes with it um, a letter to the king of France making an apology for... for and a plea to stop persecuting evangelicals. Uh, he, he, wanted, um, he, he wanted to protect and to inform uh, believers in France. And, and in this way, it's much like Augustine's City of God. Augustine is Calvin's favorite early church father. Uh, he quotes him all over the place. Uh, not more than scripture, but pretty close to it. Uh, and Augustine's City of God is another, you know, huge tome that's written in defense of the Christian faith. It's written to the Roman emperor to say, you know, the destruction of Rome and the, you know, the invading armies, they're not Christianity's fault. Uh, it, it was an apology and a survey of the history of the Old Testament and of the, the New Testament and of the early church where Augustine was saying, please stop persecuting Christians because this is not our fault. Uh, Calvin's doing the same thing in the Institutes. He's saying, please, stop persecuting Christians. We're not seeking our own glory. We're not seeking our own power, but God's. He says in a letter that he writes at the beginning of the Institutes, What is more consonant with faith than to recognize that we are naked of all virtue in order to be clothed by God, that we are empty of all good to be filled by Him, that we are slaves of sin to be freed by Him, blind to be illuminated by him, lame to be made straight by him, weak to be sustained by him, to take away from us all occasion for glorying, that he alone may stand forth glorious, and we glory in him. So Calvin's passion through his whole life, but especially in the Institutes, is to highlight the glory of God. And this is his appeal to the king of France is, we're not seeking power, we're not seeking influence, we're seeking the glory of God. Uh, and 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 for that reason, we're not a threat to you. We want you to be caught up with the glory of God as well. Uh, so this first edition, a pocket guide, could be hidden in a jacket, um, smuggled into France. Um, all through his life, he's, he's smuggling pastors and pamphlets into France uh, to further the Reformation. Yeah, Mike. Where did that print up? Somewhere in Basel. Um, they had printing presses by this time, and so they were able to mass produce them, especially as small as it was. Um, again, the first edition you could, could hide in a pocket and easily destroy. Basel, Switzerland, just right here, right across the border. Um, so in, um, soon after that, soon after he writes this first edition of the Institutes, uh, he needs to return to Paris on some business, but it's really dangerous here because King Francis is, he's fickle, uh, and so he's, He's not really happy with the Pope right now, so it's dangerous to travel kind of this main highway from Basel to Paris. 
So he decides he's going to go south, swing through Geneva. There's a nice pretty lake there. You know, he can enjoy the walk and then loop back up to Paris by a safer way. Um, so he, he gets to Geneva and the town of Geneva was kind of in a tumultuous time. They had just thrown out the bishop. They had just put a stop to the mass. They had just told all the priests that you either need to convert to the Reformation or get out of the city. Uh, most of them decide to convert. Um, and then walks Calvin. Uh, he's trying to keep his head down, pass through, because he wants to go back to Paris. And his goal is to get to Strasbourg uh, to study, to live the life of a scholar. Um, he was introverted. He was a bookish man. And he just wanted to read and study and learn and be able to write and inform the Reformation. But one of the city's leaders, Guillaume Farrell, heard that Calvin was in town and he jumped on the opportunity. Uh, Farrell asked, asked Calvin to stay and lead the Reformation. Uh, Calvin said, no, I need to go to Paris and then I want to go to Strasbourg to study. And Farrell uh, responds, uh, in Calvin's words, he proceeded to utter an imprecation, that's like a holy curse, uh, that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I detested from, desisted from the journey which I had undertaken. Um, so, by Farrell's threat, Calvin ends up staying in Geneva and leading the Reformation there. And again, um, you know, Farrell's a little quick, you know, quick off the shot. Um, but this is Calvin's submissive spirit. You know, he he believes that God speaks to us through His Word and through His people. And, and here's this leader of the church saying. It's incumbent on you to stay and help. And Calvin says, well, if I can be of use, I'll stay and help. Uh, so in the summer of 1536, Calvin settles in Geneva. Uh, and he starts to make some changes in the town. Uh, more frequent communion. They switch to once a month instead of once a quarter. He writes a new confession of faith uh, and some catechisms that he requires the town to learn, uh, to come to the table. Uh, that you know, He wants Christians who come and partake of the supper to actually know what's happening, to actually know something about God, to actually believe some of the truth. Um, again, this that sounds so... Uh, assuming to us like of course we want christians who take the lord's supper to know what's going on but it was revolutionary then um, and he actually starts to fence the table and by fence the table we mean say you know if you're a believer you're welcome if you're not a believer this is actually dangerous for you and we want you to stay away uh, but the city council didn't like that very much because uh, he was keeping out some of the civil magistrates who were known drunkards and adulterers. And he said, you know, your lifestyle is not consistent with that of Christ, so stay away. They didn't like that very much, um, so they ordered him to admit everyone. So that starts the tension between Calvin and the city council. Um, he continues to call city leaders to repent of their sins. Um, and they respond by requiring the use of the old wafers instead of like a loaf of bread in communion. Because remember, uh, part of the, the Catholic tradition was you use wafers instead of bread because what happens if you, if you spill some crumbs on the ground of the church during communion? This is actually the body of Christ, and so is that desecrating it by spilling it on the ground? So they used wafers so that there wouldn't be any crumbs. Um, but, but Calvin's view of, of the supper is different. Um, he refuses to use wafers, so he's banned from preaching. Of course, he's not going to do that because that's his passion. So he preaches, and they kick him out of the city. Um, they, they, so the city of Geneva kicks John Calvin out of the city. Um, you've got to look back at yourself and be like, what were we thinking? You know, if you look back through the lenses of history, Calvin's actually not that upset about it because now he's like, okay, finally, I can go to Strasbourg. I can study. I can write. I can do what I wanted to do all along. Uh, so he, he goes to Strasbourg, and Martin Bucer, a leader of the Reformation in France, uh, finds out that he's in town. Here's the author of the Institutes. Here's this uh, great scholar. Uh, Calvin asks Bucer, where's the nearest library? Bucer says, you are being like Jonah, fleeing from your, your God-given calling. And he insists that he becomes the pastor of one of the churches in Strasbourg. So here again, humble, submissive Calvin pastors a church in Strasbourg. Um, and he actually enjoys it. Uh, 38. Two years. He's in Geneva for two years, and then he comes to Strasbourg. Uh, and he actually enjoys it a lot, um, because Strasbourg is closer to Germany, so there's more... Uh, rep yes? It's actually in Germany. Oh, it is in Germany. Okay, there you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, 
it's on the border. <laughs> it's on the yeah. All of these towns are right on the border. You know, there's a big range of mountains here. Um, thank you for that adjustment. Um, so yeah, that's good, right? Um, so he's actually in Germany. So he's he's able to rub shoulders with some of the German reformers, um, and and he's stimulated intellectually. He gets married while he's in Strasbourg. Um, he starts writing his commentaries on the Bible there, uh, and, and he enjoys Strasbourg, and, and he's he's happy and he's looking forward to living his life there. Meanwhile, in Geneva, things are not going well. Um, politics are tumultuous. Religion is up in the air because they've kicked out Pharrell and Calvin and who's going to lead if not them. Um, so in 1541, they invite him back. Um, they send him a letter saying, we're sorry, will you come back and lead the Reformation in our city? Uh, and again, both Busser and Pharrell now, Busser from Strasbourg and Pharrell from Geneva say, you need to come back and lead the Reformation in this, this important city. Um, so he does. Submissive Calvin says, okay, fine. He picks up his wife and his family, and they move back to Geneva. Uh, this is in 1541. So two years in Geneva, three in Strasbourg, and then back to Geneva for the rest of his life. And his first Sunday that he's back, you know, imagine that you're, the, you're part of the city council. You're part of the congregation that has kicked out John Calvin. He's gone away. He's studied. He's learned for three years, and he's back. And his first Sunday, he walks into the pulpit. What are you expecting? <laughs> Thank you for calling me back. Thank you for calling me back. It's good to see you. It's like, uh, I, I, yeah, it's like a little bit of, of sarcastic tone, maybe some, um, you know, some teaching about people who persecuted the prophets, um, something like that. Before he left, before he was kicked out, his last sermon in Geneva, I believe was in the book of Job. Uh, I can't remember exactly where, but I think he was preaching through Job when he was kicked out. Three years later, he comes back, and on his first Sunday, he starts in the next verse of Job. Like, it, it, like he's, he just totally glosses over the fact that they kicked him out of the city and then invited him back. Because for, for him, he wasn't interested in retribution. He wasn't interested in, in one-upsmanship or getting them back. He wanted to come and preach the word. And that's what he was going to do. Uh, so, so he picks right back up where he left off and continues the Reformation in Geneva. He had a great passion for God's word. Uh, this is where Calvin lives out his days. Uh, he leads the city um, politically. Uh, it has its ups and downs and things that go well and things that don't. Um, but the, the motto of the Reformation by this time is Semper Reformandi. Uh, you've heard of Semper Fidelis, always faithful. Semper Reformandi means always reforming. Uh, that, that the church just like believers are never perfect, the church is never perfect. There's always a way that we need to be conformed more and more to Scripture. There's always ways that we need to change. And so, so Calvin is consistently trying new things, trying to bring the city, trying to bring life more and more in line with Scripture. So he leads the city. He continues to write. Uh, he writes commentaries on just about every book of the Bible uh, and continues to expand the institutes. You know, I said the first edition fit in a pocket. By the time he's done... Um, with, I think, the fifth or sixth edition. These are the institutes now. It's two volumes, 1,500 pages. Um, this, is how, this is where Calvin Institutes end up. Um, so, but over a lifetime, this is his, his work. Uh, and it's, it's, again, highlights the glory of God in salvation, in the church, uh, in the Trinity, in the world, in creation, and everything. And he continues to expand that, and this... Uh, this edition, well, not this particular edition, but his final edition is finished in 1559. He starts a seminary in Geneva. Um, he has lectures, uh, he has students, he teaches and he trains. Uh, and as I said earlier, uh, he trains pastors and smuggles a lot of them back into France uh, so that they can continue to convert people, uh, to bring them around to the Reformation way of thinking. Um, but also... Geneva becomes somewhat of an international city and refugees uh, and other, uh, from other nations, Belgium, Netherlands, Germany, Italy, um, the British Isles, all come to Geneva. They get trained by John Calvin and sent back in uh, to teach, to preach, uh, to lead the Reformation. And he trains missionaries. Uh, one of the great missionary efforts of the Reformation comes from John Calvin's teaching and ministry. They send missionaries to Poland, Hungary, Italy, even as far as South America. People from Calvin's College in Geneva um, go literally around the world to take uh, the, the message of salvation, the gospel, uh, to people. 
Um, I think the grounds are still there. I don't know that it's still a seminary. Um, I'm not sure. Hope to go to Geneva one day, but hasn't happened yet. Um, starting in 1555, Calvin starts to have health issues, and they plague him for a decade. Uh, he, he won't die until 1564, um, but there's a long passage in a letter that he wrote to his doctor about all the different health issues he has. Um, kidney stones, hemorrhoids, constant mucus, um, constant headaches, aches in his shoulder. He can't stand up comfortably. He can't sit down comfortably. Um, he can't really ride a horse because of other complicated issues. He's just a, an afflicted man, and you see that in portrayals of him. Uh, he's, he's often pictured as very thin, as very frail. Uh, it was hard for him to keep food down. Uh, he just had so many health issues that plagued him all of his life. Um, but these last 10 years of his life are some of the most fruitful. Uh, and in reading about that, I'm reminded of Paul saying, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Um, that, that God was so gracious to me, to humble me, to give me this thorn in my flesh, that I might remember that it's not in my own strength, but in His, that I live and work and minister. Uh, and Calvin's very much the same. Uh, he deals with this constant pain, this constant bad health, uh, for about 10 years until he dies in May, May 27, 1564. Uh, he dies in Geneva um, after his you know, exile to Strasbourg and comes back to Geneva. He lives there the rest of his life. Um, surrounded by um, friends, pastors that he has trained, um, people that he loves. And by his request, he's buried in an unmarked grave in the community cemetery. Uh, we don't know where his grave is because it was unmarked. And, and this is Calvin, humble to the end, um, never calling attention to himself, but always, always directing people to the glory of God. So that's John Calvin in a nutshell, uh, not quite as, as entertaining or bombastic as Martin Luther, uh, but certainly um, a, a man who we are very grateful for. Uh, before we wrap up today, I want to give a quick note on the five points of Calvinism. You've got that section on your outline that says, From Calvin to Calvinism. Um, one of the misconceptions about John Calvin is that he was obsessed with election and predestination. That, that that was his lens, that he saw everything through, that that's what he read the Bible looking for, that that's what he wanted to teach all the time. John Calvin is just obsessed with election and predestination. Um, here's a little bit of the context for that. Jacob Arminius was a student at Calvin's academy in Geneva 20 years after Calvin had died. So in 1584, Jacob Arminius shows up in Geneva and studies and returns to Amsterdam up in the Netherlands. And Arminius, when he's back in Amsterdam, starts teaching some things that are different than what Calvin taught, especially as it pertains to salvation uh, and God's election of people. After, after his death, Jacob Arminius's death, some of his students petition the leaders of the Reformation in the Netherlands to accept these, these five they called them the remonstrance, um, these, these five theses about salvation that Arminius taught. Um, they, they wanted them to be acceptable in the Dutch Reformed Church. 1618 and 19, now more than 50 years after Calvin's death, a synod, a regional body of church leaders and theologians, gets together in a city called Dort to address these, this, this petition, these five um, theses that they want added into um, authorized doctrine. And, and this synod of Dort produced five counterpoints to Arminius's what they determined to be false teaching. And these five articles against the remonstrance, or the five points of Calvinism, came out of the synod of Dort. So the five points of Calvinism, that, that TULIP acronym, um, very Dutch uh, to talk about TULIPs, um, these come out of a dispute on one specific aspect of church teaching. Um, they were never intended to be a summary of Calvin's teaching. Uh, they're, they're a response. And so by being a response and saying, no, we don't believe this, we actually believe that, People don't know about the remonstrance. They just know about the five points of Calvinism. And they seem really negative because they are. They're saying, no, we don't believe that. This is what we believe. So they were never intended to be a summary of Calvin's teaching, but they're a contextual response to a misunderstanding in a certain particular area of teaching. Uh, I think the institutes are helpful proof of that. Um, 1,521 pages in the institutes, uh, at least in this edition. 
Um, less than 5% is spent on election. Um, and, and even the, the even those pages where he mentions election, that's not the main focus of it. So less than 5% of Calvin's Summa Theologica is spent on election, and he doesn't even get to it until volume two. Calvin was not a man obsessed with election. He was a man obsessed with God. He was a man obsessed with the glory of God and, and how it impacted every aspect of life, every aspect of church life, every aspect of creation and worship and, and, and everything. So Calvin is a man not obsessed with election, but who sees God glorified in everything, including salvation. And that should be our emphasis as well. You know, we often get misunderstood. We get tunnel vision on one particular aspect of our faith, one particular aspect of how we think worship should be. Our obsession should be the glory of God. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Soli Deo Gloria, that, that all, of, all of salvation, all of life is lived to the glory of God alone. So I just wanted to whet your appetite for that a little bit and, and hopefully clear up a misconception uh, that some may have or that you may hear from other people about Calvin and Calvinism. Um, he's not obsessed with election. He's obsessed with God and glorifying him. Let us do the same. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you, uh, as always, for your word and for men like Calvin who had a desire and a passion to teach it, uh, to train others to teach it, and to send them literally around the world uh, to bring the good news of the gospel, of salvation by faith alone, um, to many. Father, help us to believe that gospel this morning. It's so easy for us to fall back into works righteousness, to fall back into, um, I deserve this good thing, or I deserve this punishment. Uh, Father, help us to remember that as judge, you've spoken a final word, and we relate to you as Father. Uh, Father, help us, help us to look more and more like Christ. Help us to rely on him, to grow in our Christian life, to work very hard at being what you've declared us to be, not because we have to, but because you've already loved us. You've already forgiven us. You've already brought us into your family. Father, help us to live as sons. Do this, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.